Hello and welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas here, and I also hosted the event you're about to hear at Antidote Festival in 2020. It's called Reasons to be Cheerful, and it features Dutch historian Rutger Bregman and Sydney's own Deputy Lord Mayor, the author Jess Scully. I loved the conversation, and I hope you do too. Welcome to Antidote, everyone. I'm Edwina Throsby, and I'm the Head of Talks and Ideas here. And we're here to talk about optimism. And let's be honest, 2020 has not been a good year for us optimists. From the bushfires and their visceral and tragic evidence that our failure to deal with climate change has the power to literally destroy our world, to the pandemic and the associated toilet paper looting, to the racial injustices brought back into deadly focus, and then the exposure of the fragility of one of the world's largest democracies with the US election, which is not over yet. It has not been a good news year. But at the same time, the spirit with which the Australian community came together during the fires was actually beautiful. And the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement brought people together in record numbers to collectively shout that enough is enough. The shaky, corruption-weakened structures of American democracy did hold on, if only just. And by showing their stress, their stress fractures, they might actually begin to be reformed. And with the COVID pandemic, well, even though the human cost has been immeasurable, we've all lived through the biggest global collective experience that we've ever known, and hopefully will ever know. So, we do have reasons to be cheerful. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the world and those of us who inhabit it are actually not dreadful and pitiless, but in fact, we're all rather nice. And joining me today at Antidote uh, to help me leave you with a feeling of hope and not despair are two people who have written books about just this subject. Jess Scully is the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, a creative, a creative curator and cultural powerhouse, founder of Vivid Ideas, uh, collaborator with me on TEDx Sydney, and more recently, the author of a new book, Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World, which looks at the way society has, and is, and can build systems based on community strength and fairness and caring for each other and our planet. And joining us from the Netherlands, writer and historian Rutger Bregman, uh, on a very early Sunday morning, uh, returns to Antidote, the first repeat guest, to, look at, uh, to talk about his new book, which is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And this makes the revolutionary argument that the cynical but extremely popular belief that we've all been indoctrinated with, that we humans are motivated by greed and self-interest, simply isn't true. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you pessimist. Um, uh, because uh, this is a sharing, caring environment here at Antidote, but the COVID situation means that we can't have microphones in the um, in the theatre anymore, I do encourage you to use our online uh, question-asking platform, which is called Slido. Um, actually, can we get the slide back up that has the has the thing? It's it's www sli.do. If you go to that URL on your phone now and use the uh, the entry code antidote, uh, that will let you into the um, to the question asking platform. And I would encourage those introverts that are normally too scared to go up to a microphone when they're in the when they're in the room to take full advantage of this um, of this system and get asking questions because we need to hear your voices. You can also upvote the questions that other people have asked that you've liked. But there's a lot to talk about here, so let's get to it. Um, caring and trust are important themes of both of your books. And they're things that I think there's an increasing call to start uh, building our systems and our society around. But Rutger, before we get to that, is it possible that we're all not terrible people? Hmm. Well, I think it's certainly possible. Let me first say, I mean, it's really amazing that I'm able to be, be with you today. Is this screen? I mean, the screen is huge, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think it's uh, it's very early in the morning here, and I'm on the other side of the planet. Um, now, you know, I wanted to write this book, Humankind, but it's because I started to notice that there was a shift happening in science. 
So many scientists from so many different disciplines have been moving in the past couple of decades from a quite cynical view of human nature, of who we are as a species, to a more hopeful view. Now, as you know, many of these scientists, brilliant specialists, they know everything about their, you know, they, their tiny little field of study. And they often don't notice what, what's going on in the field next to theirs. So what I wanted to do in this book is to connect the dots and to show that something bigger is going on. That, um, well, we're not angels, obviously. And in a way, you could even argue that we're one of the cruelest species in the animal kingdom. We do all kinds of very bad and nasty stuff, including the looting of, looting of toilet paper, as you mentioned. Um, but there's a real reason for hope as well. And um, I think that's uh, something that we desperately need today. So when you, look at the, when you looked at the science, um, you know, going back to sort of evolutionary biology, um, which is actually mm -hmm. in itself a contentious field often, um, but what, what, yeah. were some of the, what were some of the, the things that you found? I mean, it's, we, we, we've, we've built a lot of structures on the idea of the survival of the fittest. You know, capitalism is informed by this yeah. idea. You know, communism in a way was, was informed by, by this idea as well in, in some ways. Um, what actually is superseding that? Well, when I heard survival of the fittest, and I think this is true for many people, they, they, they see that as a rather pessimistic message and they tend to think in terms of survival of the strongest or survival of the nastiest or survival of the smartest or something like that. And a lot of people are left behind um, in that scenario. Now, what's really interesting that is that biologists today are talking about something very different, which is survival of the friendliest. Um, what we actually know now is that the real secret of our success as a species is not that we're so smart, not that we're so, you know, so powerful or mean or whatever. It's actually our capacity to connect with other people and to learn from one another. Individually, humans are, you know, quite unremarkable. We're not very, you know, we're not very smart. If you do an intelligence test and you let a human toddler compete with a pig, then often the pigs win. You know, people should keep that in mind when they when they eat bacon. But uh, yeah, we're not we're not all that smart. But then, what makes us special? It's it's really our capacity to learn from one another. This 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 capacity for friendliness. So what what biologists now think is that actually for millennia was the, was the friendliest among us who had the most kids, and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. For the biggest part of our history, when we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers. It was not, you know, smartness or, or that, that you were very muscular or something like that. No, it was friendliness that helped you to survive. Because without friends, you were doomed, basically, if you lived in the Ice Age and, you, you know, you had to survive. Now, that's pretty much the opposite of what I used to believe. And um, I think it helps us to, to light a way forward and that we should sort of try to reconnect with that fundamental part of human nature. So, Jess, if, it, if, if this is true and, and we do better and have historically also, um, you know, back in the day, done better as, as collaborators, not as competitors, what does this say about the sorts of things that we need to centre when we're, you know, organising our, our social structures? So, what does this say about things like the caring economy and, and, and you know, general ideas of, of how we build our systems? I think there is something really important in this message that we've been raised to fear each other and to be suspicious of the motivations of most people. But also we've been sort of acculturated to um, devalue those things that are fundamentally human. And they're precisely the characteristics and the skills that are impossible or very difficult to automate. They're the skills and industries that are future-proof. And that, to me, is the caring economy and the creative economy. I think two of the, the fundamental bases of being human that come from that collaborative nature that we have is the ability to tell stories and communicate with each other. That's one of our greatest superpowers. 
but also our compulsion, our drive to care for each other is something that makes us uniquely human. And if we think about the kinds of careers and the, the sectors of the economy that I think have the greatest potential in the future that are low carbon, low footprint uh, industries that are ones that can't really be offshored or automated or done by robots, it's the ability to care for each other and it's focusing on and funding and rewarding um, as much as we say we value educating children, caring for elders, caring for each other and in our health um, and when, when we need support and all of us need support at some point in our lives. But also nurturing that ability to connect with each other and be friendly and tell stories. I mean, it comes down really to, to, I guess, what we value as a society and where we place value and then also how we, how we measure that value. And, you know, I mean, I guess this is also so gendered, right? Because, you know, when you, when you sort of look at people like Adam Smith and Karl Marx and these people upon whose philosophies, you know, a lot of our, our systems were created, um, you know, they didn't have, the, have the, best, the best relationship with women, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. On both sides of the equation, they both had pretty cooked relationships with women, you know. You know, Adam Smith lived at home with his mother until she died at, at his, when he was 60, and then his cousin took over his, the caring responsibilities. And likewise, uh, Karl Marx, uh, you know, relied on, on his wife, Jenny von Westphalen, quite a lot. Um, she wrote up all of his, his documents. She raised his children. She um, really propagated the myth of Marx as well. And yet, both of them thought anything that took place in the home was unproductive behaviour. And so when they structured their visions of the economy, they left anything that was within the domestic sphere out of the equation. And we're still running on that fundamental misconception of what adds value today. And I mean, I, th I think this, this is a sort of amazing irony, particularly in this year, that like so many of us have literally worked from home this year. And so we have demonstrated in actual terms that work done within the home is valuable and yet we're still struggling to have work that has traditionally and for centuries done been done within the home to to have that recognized as something that actually brings an economic benefit to society but this isn't just like kind of abstract talk Rutka because in your book you talk about a, a Netherlands uh, health organization which is relatively new but has been uh, established on quite revolutionary principles of caring and and and, um, and such. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. You know, I think that this pandemic has forced us to ask the question once again, who are the real wealth creators in our society? I think one of the most amazing moments was in the, in the first couple of weeks when governments around the globe uh, started to publish these lists of the so-called vital workers. And you look at these lists and you wonder, you know, where are the hedge managers? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's lists of people like nurses and teachers and care workers, etc. And um, yeah, it's also true for the distinction between paid and unpaid labor. I think that for such a long time, we've had a completely upside down view of the world of work here. You know, we, we were taught this message that if you earn a lot of money and if you have a beautiful LinkedIn profile, that then you are very productive and you create a lot of wealth. But actually, if you interview these people, then many of them say, well, you know, I don't, I don't really contribute anything. <laughs> uh, and then if you look at the people who maybe don't earn that much or didn't go to a very fashionable university or something like that, well, it turns out they're incredibly important. And indeed, also a lot of the unpaid work that we do is incredibly important. So I think that is reason to completely rethink what work actually is and completely reorganize our our workplaces as well. And indeed, one of the examples that I'm most excited about is uh, this, it's a Dutch organization called Buurtzorg. Um, and what they've basically did is, uh, done is they've, they've completely, uh, well, they don't have managers anymore. <laughs> That's basically the idea. idea. So it's, a, it's an organization of 15,000 nurses, uh, care workers, um, who are organized in self-directed teams. And, um, you know, what, what, the, what is so controversial about this organization is that they deliver healthcare of higher quality at a cheaper cost. So that's very frustrating for <laughs> a lot of other, you know, companies in, in healthcare in the, in, the, in the Netherlands and around the globe, because it turns out 
um, this can be done way more be done way more effectively if you actually put the um, the professional in the center, you know, and sort of rely on that intrinsic motivation that people just want to do their job well and care for other people, and maybe we can do can get rid of a lot of the, you know, the managerial layers and bureaucracy etc. around that. Um, I think that is an example of indeed what you can do differently once you ask the very simple and basic question once again, um, who are the real wealth creators and what is the really important work that needs to be done? Yeah, I'm guessing that leadership consultants aren't on the list of, um, of essential workers. And I guess that also begs <laughs> the question, you know, I mean, there is a lot of cultural emphasis on the idea of leadership and on the idea that, you know, a, a single individual can be visionary or can, can kind of, you know, tell you how it is and can bring things. And, and this is deep in our culture, you know, this idea of the sort of solo deep thinker that comes up with a brilliant idea that changes the world. Just what do you think about the cult of leadership and, and are there better ways to think about leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think there are absolutely better ways to think about leadership. I think the leaders that have left a mark, you know, the ones that we refer to, you know, the, the Martin Luther King Juniors and the Gandhi, these are people who have awakened um, the power of the collective, the power of communities to come forward and have had the skill in articulating um, the, uh, the voices of the marginalised. And I think that is the most useful thing that we, you can do as a leader is to create a platform for the voices that aren't heard, the people who aren't at the table. Uh, and there are, there are so many new ways of doing this, of actually leaders being people who just open the door to the room and set more tables at the boardroom table and then invite people in. And that to me is genuine leadership. It's providing a platform for other voices to be heard. And that's what's missing right now. You know, we've got these, um, this idea that it's one person who will come forward and save us, but we don't just need one person's vision of the future right now. We need a more pluralistic and diverse and nuanced vision of the futures that we could have. Um, and that, to me, leadership in the 21st century is enabling other people. But we misconstrue it because we're so tied into this narrative of the hero's journey, perhaps, you know, where we think it's that one person. It's an easier story to tell in the media um, if, if it's one person coming up with these brilliant ideas. But quite often, those visionary leaders or those people we point to, those big social um, moments of change, are the result of movements of hundreds of, of um, civil society organisations coming together and putting ideas forward and negotiating amongst themselves. But we've lost that sense of the collective nature of social change in leadership. So, Rutka, this is something that, um, you know, comes up in your book as well. And, and, and the, I'd, I'm interested in what you think about, um, about the notion of collaboration and working together and how, and how it has, like, has, has it always been so? And, and, and if so, where did the sort of shift happen? Like, at what point in history did the idea mm -hmm. that we would all, like, like you know, work together um, shift into the, into the narrative of the, of the strong leader that had to be followed? Yeah. So... A lot of people, when they hear a phrase like survival of the friendliest, they may think, well, have you looked uh, at the television lately or do you follow the news at all? I mean, it seems to be more about survival of the shameless these days. Mm. And indeed, if you look at quite a few countries, whether it's uh, Brazil with Bolsonaro or Modi in India or Trump in the US or Boris Johnson, I mean, so many examples of these people who you know, show a kind of behavior that it seems incredibly shameless. And indeed, even among, for example, Republicans in the US, I, I think there are very few who say, well, you see that man on the television? Um, and and then, then tell to their kids, I want you to behave exactly like him. You know, that's your role model. No, obviously not. So it's a, it's a really fundamental question. How is that possible? Where, how, where did that happen? Now, it's interesting, if you study um, nomadic hunter-gatherers and anthropologists and scientists believe that for the biggest part of our history we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers. What you see there is pretty much the opposite. So you do have leaders in those kind of societies, but they have one thing they have to be all the time, which is humble. Humbleness is an absolute 
political prerequisite in those kind of societies. So, for example, if you're a really good hunter and, um, yeah, you know, you, you had a really good catch, then you come back to the camp and uh, someone comes up to you and say, well, did you catch anything today? You know, a deer or, I don't know, a gazelle or something like that. And then you'd say, no, no, not really. It was, a, it was another bad day. Uh, and uh, then that person would know uh, tonight's going to be a feast. You know, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> so you always downplay your achievements. That's incredibly um, important. Arrogance is actually dangerous. So imagine someone like Donald Trump in prehistory. Well, probably wouldn't have survived for long. People wouldn't have liked him, would have been cast out of the group and would have died alone. Um, the obvious question is how did we end up in a very different kind of world? I think... Um, it's obviously a huge question, but the main transition was the moment when we became sedentary and we started living in villages and cities and invented agriculture. Um, there's, there's more and more evidence from both archaeology and anthropology that actually this step towards civilization was not the solution to all of our problems, but actually the beginning of most of our problems. Uh, when you talk about infection diseases, such as COVID-19, and it's a very modern civilized disease because we live too close to our animals. But also um, this hierarchy started to increase. You could even argue that patriarchy is a relatively recent phenomenon of the last 10,000 years. Um, obviously 10,000 years, that's relatively a short while ago if you zoom out far enough <laughs> and look at the whole history of our species. Um, so yeah, it's really this, uh, this, this modern civilized way of living um, in, in hierarchies with pyramid structures, with leaders at the top, um, that's where everything went wrong, including, by the way, um, the history of, of warfare. This is what, that was, was one of the biggest surprises for me while I was researching the book. Turns out there's very limited evidence for, for war in the biggest part of our history. But then when we settled down and started living in these groups, uh, suddenly you see so much more evidence um, that we uh, yeah, were capable of much nastier behavior as well. And that's a, that's a very deep and profound question I think we should ask ourselves. How is it possible that we have often created political system, systems that, you know, do not seem to require humbleness as the main political quality, but somehow seem to reward shamelessness? Jess, you're a politician. <laughs> what do you think about this? Um, look, I think it's to do with accountability and consequences, isn't it? I mean, I think we, we've had a season of it in Australia recently, you know, where, um, where, where people aren't held to account. Uh, and perhaps that's through the distance that we have from the people who, who lead us. You know, they're insulated from the people that they're supposed to represent. They're often very unrepresentative of the people they represent. And so there are no social repercussions for shamelessness. Um, you know, whereas in a smaller group or a tighter um, environment, you would have to live with the consequences of your actions. But because people are at a remove, because they're insulated by their party system, by the media, um, and because we are also in this very a high churn news cycle, stories come and go very quickly and they can be, if they can just get through the day and the news cycle, they can keep going. So I think part of the solution has got to be reducing the distance between the governed and the, the governors. And that's by, I think, incorporating more participatory modes of um, political engagement so that you have more accountability and more direct contact between people who are represented and people who are making decisions. I think that's absolutely right. It occurs to me that another, another issue that we're facing is um, a kind of overarching narrative which, um, which regards the public sphere and public services as being inherently um, lesser or less reliable or less efficient or whatever. And this has been something that I think we've seen a huge rise on, of around the world in the last you know, few, several decades, really. Uh, that, I mean, that sort of... <laughs> Do you think that one of the things that the pandemic has really brought back to us is a recognition that, you know, what used to be called the commons and, and you know, in some circles still is, actually works on a local level and could still scale back up? What do you think, Rutger? Well, I would first uh, like to emphasise that I indeed think it's time for the return of the public sector. So... 
It's 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 been really fascinating to see. I, I think we've been living in this ideology that many call neoliberalism for I don't know what is it forty fifty years. Um, it it started in the seventies, then it took over. You know, in the eighties with Reagan in the US and Thatcher in the UK and everywhere. You know, in developed economies and also elsewhere in the globe, the idea was that you just need to privatize everything let markets do their magic, and then supposedly we would all be happier and richer in the end. Um, now, obviously, with the financial crash in 2008, it turned out, well, maybe that was <laughs> some magical thinking going on there, and actually a lot of people have suffered suffered because of that ideology. But back then, there wasn't really an alternative, I think. I think that was the main problem 12 years ago, is that people knew very well what they were against, against austerity, against the establishment, against growth, against, you know, the, the corrupt financial system. But we didn't really have the alternatives. We didn't really know yet what we are for. And that has really changed. I mean, it's been so exciting to see so many new ideas in the, that are in the air right now. Things that used to be dismissed as crazy and ridiculous have been moving into the mainstream. Whether it's, you know, you talk about... Uh, things like higher taxes on the rich or a more ambitious and activist role um, for the government in combating things like a pandemic or climate change or a guaranteed basic income to eradicate poverty. Um, I mean, you can have all kinds of different opinions, obviously, about those subjects, but there's more ambitious thinking here. Um, and indeed, I, I, I totally agree that one of the maybe more exciting ideas here is the notion of you know, reinventing our democracy and making it more participatory. The the older idea of the democracy is, um, or actually, this goes back to the original Greek idea, where you you say, well, democracy is the rule of the people, not the rule of career politicians, and you give um, yeah citizens uh, the opportunity to sit around a table, whether they're left wing or right wing, young, old, rich, poor, and you let them discuss really controversial subjects, and it turns out that if you don't see people like lazy consumers of television who are, you know, not really interested and who are too stupid to understand all these complicated affairs, if you actually treat them like constructive and engaged, then, you know, magical things can happen. Then it turns out that people actually are like that. Uh, it all depends on what you assume in other people. Um, and I think that's such an, such an exciting shift. It's, it's right. And Jess, you write a lot about this in, in your book, you also write a lot about um, about the idea of kind of how we form policy around some of these things. And you introduced me to a word that I didn't know, actually, and I just had to look it up in the book, so I will mispronounce it almost definitely. But um, but it's eudaimonia. Yeah. Go? Yep. Uh, I've come across so many ways to pronounce this, but I say eudaimonia as well. And it's an idea from Aristotle, and it's the idea of human flourishing. It's the idea of that makes life worth living. And the idea I propose in the book is that imagine if the core KPI of a government was not GDP or jobs and growth, as we call it in Australia, but in fact, human flourishing and enabling people to achieve their potential. And human flourishing or eudaimonia is not just happiness. It's also being an active citizen. It's contributing and participating in society and feeling a sense of purpose. Because I think that's one of the key things uh, that we lack or we miss out on when we outsource our responsibility in a democracy up the chain, is that we can point up and say, why aren't they doing that? But what if we were more actively involved in making those decisions and we had more of our own input in the process? And when I talk about eudaimonia, I talk about the idea of, of resetting the KPIs for government. And it's something that we've done at the City of Sydney. We've got um, community wellbeing indicators. We measure people's trust in their neighbours, their sense of um, safety, um, how many social connections they have in their community. And, and we've seen the numbers grow and we align our policies and our spending to trying to increase the the responses in, in terms of people saying they have trust in each other, for example. And in New Zealand, um, from last year, they introduced the wellbeing budget. And this is the idea of making politicians accountable for things apart from GDP. So um, the, the welfare of children is now 
one of the things that that government has to now report on at budget time. Soil erosion and water pollution is something they have to account for and be accountable for. So it's a question of us creating a space where we can have a conversation about what we value and what the purpose of society is. What is our shared intention when we gather together in this big tribe and live here? Um, and there's no space at the moment for us to have that conversation. So when we go to an election, what I see is that we get these very transactional and self-interested offerings from governments where they say, vote for us, more money in your pocket, more, you know, this much in, in your tax return, and so forth. Not, here's what we're going to do with your common wealth. Here's our shared set of goals and intentions as a society. And this, these are the policy um, proposals we're putting forward to achieve that. So it is a fundamental reimagining of what we're doing here together and trying to eke out spaces for that conversation to happen. I mean, it's, it's so much comes down and elections, you know, are, are about the stories that, that, that are created and told. And, and actually, Rutger, one of the things I really liked about your book was that it systematically goes through so many of our sort of foundational stories about human nature, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the cultural myths and the and the actual sort of you know so-called proven experiments that that mm -hmm. purport to show that we are self-interested assholes that just want to kill each other <laughs> and 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 the way that the, the sort of the way that you, you start with with the Lord of the Flies, which which most of us read in high school, you need to buy Rutger's book to if you if you haven't heard him t tell the story of the of the alternative Lord of the Flies, which is a true story um, from the 1960s. You need to buy his book or listen to some of his interviews to hear that. But I'd actually one of the things I loved was the way that you looked at a lot of the 1950s post-war psychological experiments, which have become so famous mm -hmm. and written about by people like Malcolm Gladwell and like you know really recently that, that, that mm -hmm. show really bad things. Um, would you like to talk perhaps, I don't know, about Philip Zimbardo and the, and the very famous Stanford experiment and, and what you found sure, out about sure. that? Yeah. So here's an example of a really old idea in Western culture that comes back again and again and again. Uh, it's what scientists call veneer theory. The notion that our civilization is only a thin veneer, only a thin layer and that below that lies raw human nature, that deep down people are just selfish. Now, this idea comes back again and again. See it with the ancient Greeks, with the Orthodox Christians, the notion of original sin, with the Enlightenment philosophers that you already talked about, such as Adam Smith and David Hume and you name it. It's embedded at the heart of capitalism, the notion that people are just selfish. And I think fundamentally, it's a legitimization of hierarchy. Uh, if we cannot trust each other, then we need them. You know, then we need those at the top. Then we need CEOs, managers, kings, queens. And this idea comes back again and again. So my book had to become a little bit, you know, had to be, become a, a relatively long book because there are so many examples of this veneer theory. And indeed, one of the more influential secular versions of it is, is, are these really famous psychology experiments from the 60s. I think many people will have heard about the Stanford Prison Experiment done by psychologist Philip Zimbardo in the 70s. Now, it became incredibly famous, and I, you know, I used to talk a lot about it as well because I, I thought it was a, a, a brilliant experiment that showed some profound truth about human nature. Um, what Zimbardo did in the early 70s, he had 24 students and he put them in a fake prison in the basement of Stanford University. And 12 of them became guards and 12 of them became prisoners. Now, the standard story was that very quickly, these guards who at first described themselves as pacifists, you know, very nice, friendly hippies, <laughs> um, that they very quickly turned into monsters and started to show very sadistic behavior. And so the message of the experiment was, if you give people the freedom to do whatever they want, you know, they'll, they'll be totally corrupted very quickly. So that's exactly why we need all these checks and balances, why we need this hierarchy, why people need to be kept in control. Um, I think that that's one of the reasons why this story became so popular and famous. Um, as I said, you know, I used to believe this as well, but it turns out that only a couple of years ago, the archives have opened, have, have opened up and, and researchers have been able to study what actually happened in this case. Um, and, well, we now know that the whole experiment was basically a hoax. 
Um, these students who were supposedly very sadistic were specifically instructed by the researcher, Philip Zimbardo and, in, and his co-workers to behave as nasty as possible. Most of them said, I don't want to do that. That's not who I am. You know, let's just have a good time. Let's play cards. Let's make music. Um, and then uh, the researcher said, well, you got to do this because we need these results because then we can go to the press and show, you know, uh, prisons are terrible environments. We need to reform the whole thing. And somehow this became one of the most famous experiments in psychology, you know, ended up in all, all the textbooks and we've been talking about for 50 years. And what people don't actually know is that the one time researchers did a proper prison experiment, this was the, called the BBC prison experiment, was done decades later by in collaboration with the BBC because they thought, you know what, we're going to do the Stanford prison experiment again because it will be great for ratings. Uh, and they, they worked with two British psychologists who said, okay, that's, that's fine, let's do that. But uh, we don't want to interfere. So we just want to have a prison with, with guards and prisoners and you know, give them the freedom to decide for themselves how they want to organize everything. Well, that turned out to be a major mistake from the BBC because it created the most boring television that has ever been created in the history of television. Now, for you and for my readers, I, uh, I watched those six hours, all the episodes of the BBC prison experiment. I'll never get those hours back in my life. You know, it's the most boring ever. It's already in the first episode that, that a guard says to a prisoner, can't we just talk about this? Can't we become friends? And in the last episode, they've all ditched their uniforms and they're all sitting together in the cantina uh, playing cards and, 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 and drinking tea. It's really horrible. It's horrible television. So it's, it's, it senses a very dark message about human nature. If you leave people alone, then they drink tea together. <laughs> the thing that is astonishing, though, is just how kind of culturally persuasive these ideas have been. And, you know, they, they really are literally the centre of so many of our, of our political and economic systems, these assumptions about human nature. Why is it, do you think, that um, we're so inclined to believe them? And, and why is it, do you think, that people started telling these stories in the first place? Hmm. Hmm. So there are obviously a couple of reasons. The first thing you'd have to look at is the kind of information that we get every day. So when we want to know how our friends or colleagues or co-workers or, you know, are doing, we just ask them. When we want to know how the, what the state of the world is, we often consume this source of information that we call the news. And the news often looks objective. It looks as a sort of a neutral depiction of the world, but it's actually highly subjective. It mainly focuses on the exceptions, on the things that go wrong. And uh, psychologists have known this for a long time, actually, that if you follow too much of the news, you get this thing that we call mean world syndrome, where you get the feeling that the world is just a nasty place and you become more anxious and depressed. So, so that's sort of a very simple reason. It's all about the kind of information that we get. Um, I think deeper reasons why we often believe that most people are selfish is, well, as I said, it's in the interest of those in power. You know, they want us to be cynical. Cynicism is the greatest gift that you can give to, to those in power because it justifies, you know, it justifies the status quo and it justifies all these hierarchical systems. And and then that's why I believe it's a revolutionary act to believe that most people are deep down pretty decent. Um, now, one of the last things to keep in mind here, though, is that it's also part of human nature itself to focus on the negative. This is what psychologists call the negativity bias. So uh, something, something terrible or an, something nasty, it just makes a bigger impression on us than the good. Um, I always like to say that evil is stronger than good. It's just the way it is. But the good can still win with an overwhelming majority. And that's how it usually does, you know. It's, you could also call it the banality of the good. Uh, there are so many, I mean, there are millions acts of sm small acts of kindness performed every day. And in the end, uh, if, if, they, uh, if those kind of things have an overwhelming force of majority, they can, they can still win. There's also a power element here too, though, isn't there? Because if you 
if you have a population believing that they can't trust each other and that and that they you know can't can't sort of you know follow their own course or, or make friends with their neighbours because their neighbours might screw them over or whatever, then those populations are easier to control. Mm. I mean. You see this really coming up in the Enlightenment, um, a lot of these ideas, and, and I guess that also coincided with a kind of age of imperialism and, and, and colonial expansion. Um, how useful do you think these ideas were to a sort of colonial agenda? I mean, they're incredibly useful to a colonial agenda and they, they continue to be. Um, this idea of a kind of a civilising force that's sweeping across the world or that, that it, it was needed, um, you know, it, it's hand in hand with the idea of terra nullius or um, the idea that, that there were white saviours out there um, sweeping into to places. <sighs> it, it's, it's really pervasive and it's... Um, it is built into the the architecture of how we make decisions uh, and how we organise um, at the moment. It's built into the way we perceive each other, how we tell stories about each other. Um, and so I think w the process of decolonisation is a process of... Um, removing that idea of original sin and distrust um, and the, the tribalism that is built into our systems. Uh, and so, you know, the, some of the most meaningful, you know, and, and kind of uh, impactful conversations I had for the book, I think, were with um, First Nation um, advocates and thinkers around the world who were looking at decolonising their mindsets and the economy um, and how to move from a transactional approach to uh, the economy and to care and to one that centred uh, people and connection and community um, and also care for country because that's the other piece of care that I think we can't forget is that it's not just caring for humans, it's caring for the planet is at the foundation of this more fruitful um, and productive economy that we could be a part of. And, you know, um, some of the, one of the best conversations I had was with a guy called Rowan Farley from the Aboriginal um, Carbon Fund uh, who works in the north of Australia. And he talked about using, you know, I originally wanted to talk to him about using carbon credits and how you could use carbon credits for um, traditional uh, uh, um, land maintenance practices using fire and, and, um, and he just... We kept butting heads in this conversation because I kept wanting to know the stats and the numbers and how many hectares they were burning and how many projects they had going. And he just said, you're missing the point. It's not about how many projects we have going on or how many carbon credits I've accrued through this process. It's about reconnecting people with the country and giving them a sense of their culture and their connection to place. And that's the real metric that we're working towards. And all the stuff we do with carbon accounting and credits is just really a pretext to allow that genuine connection to happen. But it is, we have internalised that dialogue, that perception of humanity. It's, it's so deep, you know, we've internalised the impossibility of change as well. And so we need to sort of go back to basics and question some of those things as well. And, and many of the points that Rutger raises in his book too. It's like we have to decolonise our view of human nature. Yeah. Um, Rutger, when I was reading your book, it, it it struck me again that that history is cyclical, and and you know I am by far the first person from, to make that observation. But but you know we we we've come out of a kind of pretty grim period. Um, do you think that this moment in history, like 2020, particularly, and and do you think that this could be a turning point in a cycle? And do you think that maybe we might be optimistically entering a phase that is more focused on? Uh, this this revised view of human nature? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's always important to make the distinction between optimism and hope. Huh. So the danger of optimism, I think, is that it can become a form of complacency where you say, things are moving in the right direction. Don't worry, we're richer, we're wealthier, we're healthier than we were 30, 50 or 200 years ago. So... Um, just uh, enjoy the ride. Things are, things are going fine. Uh, and indeed, it is true that we are, you know, the world is in a much better place when you look at metrics such as health or how rich we are or 
the decline of extreme poverty than 30 or 50 years ago. Um, but, you know, that has gone hand in hand with the wrecking of the planet. So <laughs> there, there, are, there are things to be genuinely worried or even terrified about as well. Now, hope is about the possibility of change. It's about recognizing that things can be different, that there's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our economy and society today. That's why, to me, studying history and hope are fundamentally connected. Because history is all about showing that things don't have to be this way. Um, they can be radically worse or radically better. You know, for, for Germans in the, in the 1920s or the 1930s, it, it was unimaginable that, that, you know, a dictator like Hitler would rise and all the kind of terrible things that would happen after that. That was unimaginable. Um, but it was also unimaginable once that we would abolish slavery, you know, implement a representative democracy, um, try to achieve equal rights for men and women, build a welfare state, all of these. You know, every milestone of civilization was once a utopian fantasy. And that's why I think history is... Uh, probably the most subversive of all the social sciences, because just studying history gives you this feeling, well, things can be different. Now, indeed, it's, um, it's very tempting to see this, these cycles. Um, history doesn't repeat itself, as they say, it, it, it rhymes. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's very, <laughs> it's hard not to get the feeling that 2020 might be a crucial year or a turning point. Uh, if we zoom out a little bit and we look at well, the history of the 20th century, what you see is that after the Second World War, everyone or a lot of people were Keynesians, you know, followers of the British economist John Maynard Keynes and believed that we needed to build a big state with healthcare for everyone, you know, a welfare state. And um, that was sort of the prevailing ideology of, you could say, social democracy in the, in the 50s, the 60s and the early 70s. Then that obviously all broke down with stagflation and the oil crises, and we saw the rise of neoliberalism, the rise of Thatcher and Reagan. And that ideology has been here for 40, 50 years. You know, it's been incredibly dominant and, and effective. And uh, as I said, it, it, it seemed to be like a zombie that just, <laughs> just didn't want to die. Um, but now I really do have the feeling that the end of neoliberalism is here and that something is about to replace it. Um, there's been such an exciting shift in economics and in sociology. There have been this rise of this a new generation of economists. So, for example, um, the, you know the, the new French economists such as Thomas Piketty, who's done this tremendous work on inequality. You've got a lot of amazing new female economists such as Mariana Mazzucato, the, the Italian economist, who pointed out how important the state is in achieving innovation. People like Stephanie Kelton, who basically said, well, just print more money if you, <laughs> if you, if you have a deficit. And uh, that would have sounded, you know, crazy 10 years ago, but it's actually taken very seriously today. Um, people like Kate Raworth, who say, well, we should see uh, the economy not, we should, shouldn't obsess only about growth, but actually uh, look at um, how we can build, uh, move towards a more circular economy. Um, you know, I can go on for a very long time here, but it's, we're, we're living in a very exciting intellectual moment. And maybe uh, this crisis will give us the opportunity that these ideas that used to be on the margins can actually start moving into the mainstream. You've just expanded everyone's reading pile by like that much. Um, we've got some good questions coming in from the audience. Um, and here's one which I think that uh, you might like to answer, Jess. Um, how do we actually take tangible steps towards a more positive future while the power is still held in unethical corporations? Well, uh, to answer that, but also just to jump on, on what Rutger said, that neoliberalism didn't arise in a vacuum. It was a set of conscious plans that were, were developed over many decades. And then when the moment arose, when the crisis happened in the 70s, they were well poised to come forward and put forward an alternative agenda, which then became the dominant um, ideology, which overtook Keynesianism. We're at that moment now, we're at a moment of crisis where if we have a set of policy opportunities or prescriptions to come forward with, we can take advantage of this moment and use it to, um, you know, harness this beast, tame the beast and pull it back into line. I think... Um, 
we have got a whole bunch of ideas out there in the world. And what I wanted to do with my book was to gather them together so that we could say, this is what we're protesting for, not just what we're protesting against. And I think what we need to do is realise how empowered we are as individuals and as citizens, but that we can only have impact when we work collectively. And I think one of the key things that we can do is figure out how we can be active citizens in the time between elections. We think that if we show up every three or four years and vote for one team blue, team red, team green, you name it, then they'll represent our interests in the various levels of government. I don't think that's going to do enough um, in the speed of the cycles of new cycles and, and, and policy um, that we work in today. So what I'd ask is that everyone become a YIMBY. So there's this idea of a NIMBY, a person who says, not in my backyard, a person who opposes change. Um, what we actually need are more people who say, yes, in my backyard, people who stand forward, come forward and proactively call on their elected representatives to take positive steps and who put forward positive proposals or um, band together in support of positive proposals to make that change. So it's a process of becoming active citizens because there are more of us than those corporations or individuals who have an undemocratic influence. Sure. And the corp corporations do have an, an unsized degree of power, though, um, in our current structures. But, but your suggestion is that we kind of disrupt from the bottom. And this actually leads into another question, which has been the most popular upvoted question uh, so far, which is just a small one. Um, is there a future for capitalism? <laughs> Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, I think that it all depends on, obviously, how you define these kind of terms. Um, in the, in the Cold War, there was obviously this big debate about capitalism versus socialism. And I think a whole generation grew up with that dichotomy. Now, I've, to be honest, I've always been an old-fashioned social democrat. If you look at, I don't know, countries like, like Sweden or Denmark or Norway, which are, I think, capitalist countries, they show that actually capitalism can work much better if you have way higher taxes on the rich and on wealth and on, you know, property, uh, that actually you have more innovation if you have a really ambitious state who's willing to invest in the future and in the long term. So to be honest, I think that a lot of these theoretical debates about capitalism versus communism, capitalism versus socialism, etc. I don't know, I tend to find them a little bit boring. I'm more interested sort of in sort of what, what are your, the more practical proposals? Um, you know, how high, how, how high do these taxes need to be on the rich? <laughs> I think that's, that's more interesting than getting stuck in these, I don't know, definitional debates. Um, because and that, that, is, that is another worry that I sometimes have. There tends to be a kind of activism um, on the left that cares more about being right than actually about, than about achieving results. Um, and I think it's very important to care about winning. <laughs> it's very important to care about actually changing something so that people benefit from that. And um, yeah, what, what, what will we call the society that will arise once we implement things like, you know, things that, that I'm in favor of, like a universal basic income or like free housing for homeless, etc. Will that still be a capitalist society or will be it some kind of post-capitalist society? I don't know. And to be honest, I don't really care either. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm more interested in the specific proposals. Just quickly, I mean, I'm, I'm all for uh, the, the, the market if we had an undistorted, genuine market. You know, at the moment, what we have are uh, subsidies which distort a free market and which make it uh, more... Uh, more expensive to do the right thing. So if we had a free market where you had um, the where you actually priced the externalities, where you actually made it more expensive to pollute, for example, where you actually uh, made people accountable for the welfare of the people who produce their products, their workers, their, their delivery riders, whatever it is, um, then I'm all for it. But I think at the moment we have a distorted market that actually um, misrepresents where, where revenue and benefit go. Yeah. Um, there's... There's something that sort of ties in here that a, a lot of a lot of people are asking. There are two questions actually, which sort of point to a similar thing. Um, Warwick asks, sorry, my screen chose that second to refresh. 
Um, Warwick asks, what specific steps can we take to move from looking at our flawed leaders for leadership to a more collaborative style of participatory leadership? And then there's another question which, um, which kind of ties into that, but maybe on the flip side, which is how can we make it possible for marginalised people to actively participate in decision-making and progress when they're focused on their situational poverty? And, yeah. Look, I think we actually need to push for and instigate um, structures that support people to be active citizens because the people who have the, the privilege of being luxury, uh, um, active citizens right now tend to be older, richer and whiter than their neighbours. And the structures for participatory uh, governance that I admire are ones that pay people to be involved, to actually be citizens. So there are citizens' jury processes or um, citizens' assemblies. We've just had um, a climate-focused citizens' convention in the UK and in France. There's about to be one in, in Scotland too, where people are paid for their time, where groups are selected to be representative of the public at large. And so you get that diversity in the room and everyone can afford to participate. So I think we need to advocate for these processes and structures that bring everyone in and make sure everyone can afford to be a part of it. Hmm. I think we also have to be wary here, by the way, of what you could call the tyranny of low expectations. I was, I was recently... You know, I, I wrote a piece about, um, well, part of the piece was about veganism. And um, a couple of readers responded, well, you can talk about how amazing and awesome and courageous all these vegans are, but uh, that's actually a highly privileged thing, you know? Those are mostly, you know, white, rich people uh, who have the privilege and the, the, the time to think about these things. And... Um, yeah, for a lot of people, that's not an option. And then I, at first I thought, hmm, that sounds like a reasonable counter-argument. Then I looked it up. It turns out that actually people with lower incomes and people of color are much more likely to be vegan mm. than, you know, rich white people. <laughs> so it's pretty much the opposite. That is genuinely um, surprising. I, I think that uh, it, it doesn't actually have to be the case. There are lots of examples of these also these participatory democracy initiatives. For example, if you study participatory democracy in Latin America, it turns out that poor people are often more likely to, to participate because they, under, they understand very well what's in it for them. Um, so that's something I think to be, to be wary of. It's, it is absolutely true that sometimes these uh, things in richer countries that mainly, I don't know, uh, left-wing, rich, progressive people attend these participatory democracy meetings. But often the reason... I think that's the case, is because there's not, not much at stake. If, if there's a very small budget that people are deciding over, then obviously, you know, the poor are not going to show up because they very reasonably conclude that it doesn't really matter. Um, this is one of the, 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 one of the main reasons why participatory democracy initiatives often fail is simply because there's not enough at stake. You need to have a lot of money so that, that for people to decide on. And then, you, then, uh, then people will show up, believe me. So we're almost out of time, but I just want to finish by asking you, most, asking you both to quickly tell me what you're most hopeful about for the future. Well, look, I think we've just had this year where globally we actually just undertook a massive global act of care for each other. We, we stopped the economy in favour of society for the first time that I can ever think of in my lifetime. And I think we have the opportunity to build on that, to build a more caring um, and thoughtful society as a result. Rutger? I am most hopeful about the generational shift. So if you were young in the 1990s, it was fashionable to be a cynic. Back then we had bands like Nirvana singing Just Entertain Us. We had movie stars like Brad Pitt in Fight Club who said, you know, modern society, well, that's just buying stuff you don't need to impress people you don't like. Uh, we had intellectuals like Francis Fukuyama who argued that we had arrived at the end of history and that there was nothing really left to fight for. Um, yeah, and it was avant-garde to be a little bit nihilist, to don't really believe anything. Um, that has totally changed. If you now look at young people, we're talking about the most highly educated, the most uh, diverse and the most progressive generation in the history of the world. Ten years ago, I was writing op-ed pieces, you know, when I was 
I'm now 32, I was 22 back then, and I was writing pieces about why young people don't go out on the street anymore, why they don't protest. Well, that seems like a century ago. <laughs> I mean, Black Lives Matter movement in the US was the biggest protest movement in the history of the United States. We've seen a 16-year-old Swedish girl kickstart the biggest climate justice movement we've ever seen. Activism is the new realism. So this generational shift, that gives me so much hope. And it's those people that are going to be creating the narratives for our future. And Rutger, as you show in your book, and, and Jess, you demonstrate, it's the stories that we tell that in many ways become our reality and what we believe about ourselves and about our culture perpetuates into that. So if we can shift that narrative, then maybe we have a chance to, um, to actually shift our reality as well. Look, these books both pursue such similar... It, it actually blows my mind that you two wrote these books at the same time in opposite hemispheres because, because there are so many similarities. They talk to each other so constantly. I urge you to read them. They're fantastically good. Um, and I feel better after this session. I hope you all do too. Please join me in thanking Jess Scully and Rutger Bregman.